It is Tuesday, February 4th, 2020, and welcome to Season 2 of Training Data. We'll be looking to release another 20 episodes throughout the year, and we're excited to kick off this new season in concert with SAR Week. So please enjoy our first episode with myself and Jake Shermeyer talking with Capella Space about the upcoming challenge with SpaceNet 6. Thanks, and take care. Welcome everyone to another episode of training underscore data. And today we're talking about one of our most favorite topics, which is SpaceNet. And in order to do it, we really brought in one, a great guest, which we're re really excited to have here. And then two, a uh, training data veteran. So without further ado, let's get to the introductions. So first, uh, I'd like to say uh, thank you and a big warm welcome uh, to Payam Banazadeh. He is the co-founder. Uh, and CEO of Capella Space. Pyam, thanks for joining us today from California. It's super good to be here with you guys, and I'm excited about uh, talking about SAR data, the best thing in the world. And then uh, to help us in this discussion about uh, synthetic aperture radar data and how it could be incorporated into uh, different challenges, we have, as some call him, or at least as I call him, the Count of Comet TS, or, or as some other people call him, the Colossus of Cloud-Free Imagery Analysis, the one, the only, Jacob Shermeyer. Welcome right. back to the show. Th thanks, Ryan. That's a, that's a great introduction. Uh, happy to be here on the first podcast of 2020. Uh, for those keeping track at home, uh, I have one podcast this year. Nick Weir has zero. Just, just remember that. <laughs> Challenge accepted yes. to Nick. And so let, let's get right into it. Uh, you know, for those of you who have listened to the show uh, in the past, uh, we've talked a lot about uh, different types of open source efforts. Uh, clearly, our, our main effort has been uh, focused on, on SpaceNet. And for those of you that perhaps aren't as familiar, that is a nonprofit LLC that we've been running with one of our newest partners, Capella Space. And our last five challenges, which date back all the way to our first in, in uh, 2016, have all focused on using electro-optical data, uh, specifically looking at foundational uh, mapping features, building footprints and roads in those data. And the results over the course of these last three years have been impressive. But one of the things that, that's come out in some of the conversations and is certainly big in the news right now is that there are inherent limits uh, to what can be done with electro-optical data, particularly in certain applications. And so as you're thinking about really the future of a machine learning workflow, what does it mean to deploy it in different, in different use cases, the inevitable question comes in, well, what can you do with other data? And arguably one of the most uh, interesting, uh, timely, and in some cases most important uh, data sets out there is synthetic aperture radar, or SAR. And historically, it's been something that is, is very hard to get access to. And in, in many ways, it's very limited. And with Capella, uh, particularly not just joining SpaceNet, but all the work that they have done, um, it really uh, serves as an opportunity to democratize those data. And that's why with today, focusing on what we're thinking about uh, or planning for SpaceNet 6 and focusing our first ever challenge, not just on electro-optical, but on SAR, this is a, a really big step forward, I think, for the geospatial community, and it's certainly a big step forward for us on this. So kind of without further ado, let's get, let's get into it. 
Uh, so Jake, before we get into the challenge or pine, before we kind of talk about uh, the company or where we see all this going, let's just do a brief overview. And Jake, just mind walking us through kind of what SAR data is. And then Pime, if you could just jump in and say like, what are some of the benefits? And then we, that kind of rolls into kind of how you got this whole idea to start Capella. So Jake, lead us off first and Pime over to you. Sure. Um, yeah, so SAR is uh, unique in that it's an active sensor. So with typical EO data, uh, you have a, a passive sensor. You're just looking at how much light is bouncing off, off the surface. With SAR, however, uh, you're actually shooting out a radio wave. It's bouncing off the surface and then returning to your sensor. And uh, basically, uh, that signal will tell you something about that surface. Um, it might be flat, like water. You might not get much response back to the sensor. Or you might get uh, a large amount of, of response back if, it, if you have some texture or a hard angle. Um, and that, that's really what, what SAR is great at. Um, the most unique aspects of SAR are that it can pen penetrate clouds uh, and work in any lighting scenario, including at nighttime. So th this is really a fantastic um, nuance uh, of SAR data in the sense that it could be great for disaster response. Say you have uh, a really cloudy scenario, you want to know what's happening on the ground, EO data simply will not work in, in a scenario like this. Um, furthermore, if you have a high-revisit satellite, a, a constellation that Capella is planning to build, um, it's excellent in the sense that you are, are going to have a near-constant collection of, of the Earth's surface regardless of, of weather, which is awesome for, for time series analysis and, and seeing what's, what's really happening on the ground. Uh, so that, that's definitely one of the reasons why we're stoked to have uh, Pime in the studios here today to kind of walk us through what, what Capella's planning. But, you know, and Pime in our office, you know, we have a bunch of rules, and obviously we always throw a couple in at the end of these podcasts. But one of them is, and this is something we've been saying since, uh, since our founding, that geo is hard. And if, one, if geo is hard, then SAR, in, at least from, uh, from my view, is, is even harder. And so how did you decide to kind of focus on this market and take on arguably one of the most challenging, remote, challenging but beneficial remote sensing data types? Yeah, um, I think about that too often, and I I uh, question why why I'm doing <laughs> what I'm doing. Um, Just keep doing no, it, I mean, please. In all, yeah, in all seriousness, it 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 it, it was triggered um, when the Malaysian MH370 was a flight that took off from Malaysia and it was going to China disappeared. This is back in 2014, and I remember I was watching CNN and uh, other news outlets and. Everyone was talking about this massive triple seven plane with 280 plus passengers that couldn't be found. And as an aerospace trained engineer, my my big question was, well, do we really not have enough assets in space orbiting Earth that can look down and trying to find some pieces of this plane um, immediately after crash and try to pinpoint and 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 uh, and help the the first responders. And that was the original question that I had, and that sort of I kind of pulled that thread, and I um, I knew of Digital Globe and Planet and Skybox at the time, and all these other other companies that were doing Earth imaging satellites. Um, but then that also led me to pull the thread even more, and um, and found that well, can't really see through clouds, can't really see at nighttime. There's a huge gap to be able to do persistent monitoring in a very reliable way and especially in regions of of, um, of cloudiness essentially anywhere in the in the equatorial region you're totally out of luck to be able to use these um, space assets to do any sort of monitoring and 
Um, and then I came across SAR. Um, to be completely candid and honest, I didn't know anything about SAR. Um, and uh, I hadn't even heard of SAR um, back in 2014. And so the first place I went to was obviously Wikipedia. There you go. And I was trying to figure out, you know, how SAR works and what is it and uh, who owns some of these satellites and, and how do they work. And, um, and I quickly realized it requires a lot of power and the antenna needs to be really big because it is an, it's an active sensor. And, uh, and it just, my engineering um, side of me um, sort of took over and I just wanted to learn more about SAR and how the satellites work. And, um, and you know, fast forward to now, um, building a SAR constellation is probably, and most definitely not the best way of finding a missing plane, uh, but what triggers um, us trying to think through the problems and finding the gaps was that incident. And, um, and from there on, the big problem that we identified was um, SAR seems to be very useful, uh, seems to be a, a niche product, but it seems to be very useful. Um, there is clearly a gap in, in, in capabilities in the market in providing persistent um, coverage of the entire globe from space. SAR seems to be the right data set and right sensor to allow that. Um, and then the next step was, well, why is it that it doesn't exist? And, um, and the main reason was really it's very complex. Um, as a result of it being an active sensor, you do need to have um, a really large satellite. And in order to have a large satellite, um, you've got to spend a lot of money to build it and launch it. And, um, and so only a few countries have done that. There aren't that many star satellites. They're all government-owned. Um, and they were all built uh, for either military purpose or um, very much so scientific purpose. So the data is not readily available out there. And then we started thinking uh, creatively on can we build a satellite um, that is much, much smaller and therefore much, much cheaper um, that would then allow us to build a large constellation. And so as we got more comfortable with some of the answers that we initially came up with, and the answer was, yes, we think we could. Um, then we started thinking about the business model, and well, hypothetically, if we did have a constellation of, you know, 30 plus satellites, and we could monitor anywhere on Earth uh, persistently, all weather, all night, all the time, um, who actually would care about that, and what are the applications that would come out of that type of capability? And then we we went into um, we switched from engineering mode to business mode, and we started answering all those questions, interviewing a bunch of customers, um, and, and trying to essentially build a business model around that. And so that was three and a half, almost four years ago. Um, so that's sort of how we got started. And and uh, four years into it, um, we're pretty close to making the whole thing actually happen. Uh, in fact, 2020 is the year that we're gonna we're gonna deploy. Um, the first batch of the constellation and and go operational and I'm obviously excited to talk talk more about that with you guys yeah, that's huge and I, I think the a couple of points you made uh, one that I really want to just to highlight particularly for those who perhaps aren't as familiar uh, although everyone should be with familiar with trying to order and access their own overhead satellite imagery uh, if you haven't tried that uh, particularly uh, Pime, you mentioned uh, equatorial areas there can sometimes be uh, months-long uh, collection gaps, um, essentially uh, trying to leverage, or companies trying to leverage the few times where cloud cover breaks enough where you have sufficient collect, 
Um, if you're only doing a once-a-year survey of some type of land survey, that's that's probably okay. Maybe not. But for anything else where timeliness is a component, and as it goes without saying, most applications have an extremely time-intensive component, uh, particularly in, in the domains that we focus on, uh, that that level of gap just simply doesn't work. And so to kind of re-stress the importance of being able to collect in different weather conditions, um, it would be a, in the in this domain in particular, it'd be it'd be a game changer. And so what you're proposing certainly has a big impact. And I, I, I think the second point, just to highlight, you know, just the importance of this year for you guys, uh, if, if you haven't followed uh, Capella, you've had a, a pretty, I would say, meteoric rise from your founding in 16 to just in the last couple of years, you know, raising uh, a little over 80 million dollars around there from uh, some leading VCs around, including Data Collective and Spark. I mean, you guys have really made an impression on the on the valley. And I I think uh, just to maybe get a little more details. So you're going operational uh, this year. Uh, but you have a couple, you actually have a couple launches uh, planned uh, for 2020, right? Right, yeah. So we, uh, we, we launched our first satellite actually last December. Uh, well, actually, not December. Well, yeah, December of 2018. Um, we launched our first satellite called Denali. That was our Pathfinder satellite. Um, it was the first satellite we built as a company. And I don't really consider any company as a space company unless they put something in space and, and they've been able to communicate and, uh, and, and test things out. So we, that's when we became a real space company. Um, we've been using that satellite to optimize the design and build all the ground infrastructure that's required for a fully operational um, uh, constellation. So a few examples, uh, we have a fully automated scheduler and tasking platform, um, which we've been extensively testing with the Denali satellite, and I'm sure we're going to get into it, um, but another challenge that people have been having in remote sensing is the, the reactivity is so um, slow, um, and so even even if you have a constellation of 36, but it takes you nine hours to uh, request the task and receive some imagery, the urgency of using STAR is it's cloudy. I can't wait for the optical imagery to be provided, so I need to get a star image. And if, if it takes like eight, nine hours just to breathe, interact with that uh, company and receive your imagery, that's also a bottleneck of a problem. So we've been using over the last year our Denali satellite to build all that ground infrastructure and automate it. Um, that was our last year, pretty much. And in 2020, we've got our uh, first fully operational satellite that then we plan to provide imagery to customers going up um, in March on a SpaceX launch. It's called Sequoia. Uh, the name of our satellites are after uh, U.S. National Park. So Sequoia is going up in March. Um, we have three more going up uh, beginning of the summer of, of, of this year around June, July timeframe. And then we have another three going up um, in the in the latter part of the this late, late summer of 2020. And so by the end of this year, we're going to have a constellation of seven of our satellites up and operational providing providing imagery um, to our customers. So 2020 is an important year for us. And um, essentially all the last four years of work that we've been putting into this company is going to come to fruition um, and um, and a lot more after that. But that's, that's kind of how our timeline is. And a lot of these launches have been booked. 
as you mentioned, we raised more than 80 million of funding. Um, company is around 70 people now. We're ramping up to be around 120 in about six months. So lots of hiring um, and, and lots of good growth um, and exciting times ahead for sure. You know, and you mentioned something that I, I can't believe we haven't really gotten into this in the show uh, in either this season or last, but you know, we obviously focus so much on machine learning, but you highlighted you know, the importance of the entire infrastructure system from being able to process the task to disseminate, uh, to act and then collect and, and distribute. You know, the, the central premise or one of the, the central premises of incorporating an AI system into a data into a remote sensing data collection is because it gives you speed of analysis. Well, one of the reasons for that, right, is to then retask the system or, uh, or, to, or to initially task. And if you can't do that, it, you lose a lot of the, the inherent value. And so what you're describing is, is certainly non-trivial, uh, particularly at uh, the scale in, in, which you're, in which you're describing with that many satellites and, and, and yeah, protect multiple taskings. Know, one, one thing is uh, the problem of latency is an end-to-end problem. And a lot, of, a lot of the companies in our industry are so focused on just building a satellite. Um, and, uh, you know, they don't realize that the satellite obviously is an important part of this whole thing, but it's not the only part. The sensor is important. You got to make sure the sensor is producing high quality data, but then there's a whole suite of other things that need to be in place. Um, and you need to really think about the problem from end to end. And you need to think about the user experience, what their requirements and problems are. And you might be able to optimize the satellite for that. But if all the other pieces that are on the ground is also not optimized for that, then you lose um, a lot of the capability that people actually care about. Um, And so I have personally come to realize that building a space company, um, the satellite and the space part is only one one portion of it. And a lot of the difficulty is actually on the ground. And, and how you get that much data down, how you do it quickly and efficiently, how you interact with the satellite, how you interact with the customers, how you do the processing. And quite honestly, that's been really, really challenging. And the amount of resources we've been putting and pouring into the non-space portion of this company has been, has been quite a, actually quite a bit. Um, and, uh, and so you're, you're dead on, on on how important that that is. And, and the ground part really brings us to the some of the focus for today's conversation, which is you know, on the on the open sourcing side and, and the follow on SpaceNet challenge, you know, you mentioned how complex it is, how often people for, forget about it, and I, you alluded to this that you know with your first Pathfinder satellite, you've been iter- iteratively testing different aspects of the infrastructure. Well, similar with any type of advanced analytics system, you just don't simply deploy an app. And hope for the best, right? You do iterative testing, and so as we're as we now shift, kind of thinking about what's going to be open sourced in the in the coming weeks here, and then what will be used in the challenge. Uh, could you explain uh, both you, I'm you and, and Jake, explain a little bit about uh, the SAR collect that we'll be using, and and kind of why you're collecting that? Because that's really a part of a test to help you kind of move in your product development phase. Uh, into having an advanced analytics system. Uh, so this is really sort of a test data set. Yeah, let, let me maybe provide some input from the, at the high level, and then Jake, um, sure. uh, I would love sure. to, to, to get your thoughts on this. Um, 
So when we looked at the market back in 2016, we realized that um, for lots of different reasons, one being SAR data is not very easily accessible, two being SAR data is really, really expensive. If, you, if today you want to grab a SAR data from one of the leading SAR providers on the commercial side, um, you know, you'll have to pay somewhere between $2,000 to $8,000 for one image. Um, and so cost, accessibility, um, availability, and then obviously ease of uh, both requesting that file and then ease of, ease of use um, has really limited um, the, the, the user base for SAR. And uh, those who are using it love it, and they can't get enough of it. They want more of it. Uh, but then the rest of us out here, um, a lot of us don't even know that this thing exists. And a lot of us know that it exists, but we've had a really hard time trying to get access to it. And so as a company, when we're looking at this problem of building a star constellation, we also want to make sure that there's a thriving community of uh, users and developers that not only understand the capabilities and the, and the usefulness of SAR, uh, but they have some data available readily um, to be able to experiment, to play with, to to uh, to then um, to uh, to build applications, and we need to build that community and user base um, because if if that doesn't exist, then we're going to be building this capability, putting up this constellation, and we're still going to be limited to that very very small user user base um, that are there, but. They're, they're in that big and they're mostly in governments and they're mostly sitting somewhere in the basements with some windowless uh, rooms. And so we want to bring this out to uh, the scientific community. We want to bring it out to the developer community and we want to make sure they, um, they are trained appropriately and they know about the, you know, how, how, how to essentially use star data. So before we even have launched our constellation, we've done some campaigns on flying, uh, flying our own sensor. Um, on on multiple flights um, around some in the U.S. and some in Europe, and uh, we're we're starting to provide that data in in a, in a in sort of an open data license, so people can start playing with it and and do some interesting challenges. Um, and um, and as we launch our constellation, we plan to do more of that. So we plan to make sure that there's always some capacity of our constellation dedicated to. Um, to these um, communities, and, and, and it's, it's a key pillar of our business model to build that community. And so that's sort of at a very high level. It's, it's core for us to be supportive and, and make sure that people people have um, star data available so they can start playing and putting that into their workflow and, and, and be able to experiment with how this would um, have some impact into what they're doing. Yeah, and just to kind of continue on from from Payam's thoughts there, um, you know, uh, the the collect he's speaking about, and then the one that we're going to be using for SpaceNet six is is one that that's over Rotterdam. Uh, so th this is an aerial collect, um, and uh, when uh, Capella came to us saying that they had this data set, we, we were naturally super excited um, uh, just about the ability to open source some of this SAR data. Uh, SAR has been kind of SpaceNet's white whale, I would say, for the past. Uh, well, four years now. And we, that we, makes, we thought about it. That makes Payam Captain Ahab. I think so. Or no, so. Ahab has the bad end. He's Ishmael. Okay. You're Ahab. Who's the guy that threw the spear? 
Uh, yeah, I'm Could not, you... not up on my Moby Dick right, right. now. Uh, yeah. You keep talking. I'm going to look into oh, okay. it. Okay. I am listening while you're sure. doing this. Sure. I just, I, I need to Google it. Right. Shame on me for not knowing it. It's a great American novel. Anyways, please proceed. Um, but yeah, just to kind of uh, continue on from that, I would say that, um, you know, just to have sub-meter SAR data, um, I've been working on Jew stuff for almost 15 years now. And when this is the first time I've seen actually seen uh, half meter SAR data visualized. So when, when another data scientist pulled it up, um, Daniel Hogan, he, he showed, showed us, you know, the, this, this collect. I, I was super excited. I mean, I, I've been in this industry that long and I still haven't seen it. Um, so that, that just kind of shows you how, how impactful a data set li like this could be. Um, and I, I think it's going to really produce a, a really interesting challenge and should, should open up this world to a, a great number of people who really haven't had the experience. And I think the Rotterdam data set is, um, I think the first data set actually that allows you to see um, what you would be able to do with a persistent collect. Because it's, it's, I believe, Jake, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's every hour and a half or two hours over the same area. So you can see, um, you know, what you will be able to detect from the, from the change perspective if you could monitor the same area at a very high revisit that doesn't really exist today. Yeah, that, that, that's right. Yeah, so we've got uh, multiple overpasses o over Rotterdam. Um, I think it's taken over the course of three days, so you can see all, all kinds of stuff moving around. So it's a, it's a large port, right, the largest in Europe. So you see a lot of ships moving, you see cranes moving, trains, uh, cars, obviously, but uh, you, you can really start to see the, some of these interesting changes happening, which is a really cool aspect of this data set as well. And so, and just as an aside, Jake, it, it was Staub. 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 So okay. You, Staub. You, you don't make, you don't survive the the last whale hunting expedition. Okay. Just All right. quick, just to manage your, your expectations. I, I have until June at least. Yeah, so you're that's, good. Just right. get, get, through, get through the Get my the will challenge. in order. Yeah, yes. there you go. All right. Um, but in the context of the challenge, you know, you know, Pyme, you've touched on this with talking about your company strategy on being uh, very thoughtful and iterative development. This is a, a point that we have emphasized time and time again through our different projects. So this data set is certainly a resource that will f extend far beyond anything we're going to do just in this uh, particular data science challenge. But what's our first step in terms of trying to figure out the, the best utility or the, at least the current, how the current state-of-the-art uh, models work on this? Walk us through a little bit about what we're thinking of from a challenge structure perspective. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so, you know, SpaceNet is really all about foundational mapping. Uh, so we're definitely going to return to that theme. That's something we're, we're really dedicated to. Uh, we've done, we've made a lot of progress, I, I think. I mean, the, the scores that we've seen over the, the challenges have really risen consistently. Um, and of course, that's all been with EO data. So adding this new modality is going to really test how robust computer vision algorithms are to, to new data and, and seeing how, how we can leverage it in, in new ways. Um, so yeah, just kind of talk a little bit more about the data set and how we're planning to ru run this challenge. Uh, so we, we have the, the SARCLEX that um, I and, and Pyam have described. Uh, it's about 100 square kilometers we have of Rotterdam. So we've got a pretty significant area. Uh, roughly 140,000 building footprints. Um, so what's unique about these building footprints is they have the footprints themselves, but they also have height information associated with them. Um, so this is a, another aspect where we're still toying around whether we want to uh, do a height extraction component to this challenge. Um, but, but at the very least, we're going to be doing, can, can you map all of the buildings in Rotterdam with SAR? Um, 
The other aspect of this is it's going to be a data fusion challenge. So uh, we're combining the SAR data uh, with Worldview 2 data from Maxar so that this has half meter resolution as well. Um, and uh, the, the interesting aspect of this is really that uh, for our training set, we're going to have a combination of the EO data from Maxar and the SAR data. But when we're scoring, we're only going to have uh, the, SAR, super cool. the SAR data. Uh, and what we're hoping is people will use the EAO data in some creative way to kind of transform or enhance this SAR data um, and then use, uh, apply you know, this, some sort of pre-trained model to, to improve our, our SAR returns and then hopefully we can see some sort of performance boost as a result. Uh, and the motivations for this are, are pretty clear. So you have an EAO image and a SAR image concurrently from before a storm or from another area. Uh, a storm rolls in, now you only have a SAR image could, could you still leverage the CEO data in so, some intelligent fashion to really improve performance and, and increase your, your ability to pull out buildings or objects of interest? And uh, to, be, to be clear, right, that, you know, obviously we've been focused on a, on a computer vision perspective, but that's just one way to approach SAR data, right? Both in, in looking ahead as well as how it's been how it's been analyzed historically, right? Right, right. Yeah, and I mean, there's a ton of SAR expertise. Um, you know, I, I'm an EO guy myself, tried and true, so I'm, I'm still learning uh, kind of the, the nuances of, of SAR, but uh, the fact that it is an active sensor, the fact that it has complex data, we can, we can track uh, how long it takes a signal to, to bounce off the ground and return to the sensor, and uh, kind of the, the angles of the, the uh, signals that we're, we're receiving, uh, a, lot, a lot of that can be really useful and valuable in the sense of, pulling out how, how things change over time. And we can even detect minute height differences. Um, so say there's an earthquake, you might see a shift in, in, in terrain or, or land cover as a result of this. You know, one thing that we're pretty excited um, at Capella about SAR is, um, as Jake mentioned, to use the, the, the complex part, the face history, and to do some of the advanced techniques. One, that, one that's quite interesting to us is, is to do interferometry. Um, and uh, through interferometry or INSAR, um, you will be able to understand um, essentially deformations in the Z dimension um, to uh, millimeter accuracy. And so people have been using SAR to detect tunnels, for example. As, as a tunnel is getting digged under the ground, um, that slight deformation on the top, um, you know, as, as small as a few millimeters, You'll be able to pick that up uh, if you were to do interferometry, you know, putting essentially two images on top and extracting that space and, and looking at the difference. And so this has already been in use and, and demonstrated, um, you know, an interesting project that some of our partners have been doing is using, uh, using SAR imagery uh, through NSAR techniques over London and look at the underground uh, tunnels for metro and, and looking at how the city has been deforming. Um, and so you can then start doing some sort of predictions on where the risk might be. You can look at infrastructure. Um, and uh, I know in, in government, in the defense and intelligence world, people have been using um, another version of this, the coherence, it's called coherence change detection, to see um, um, essentially tire tracks, right? So if you've got a, if you've got a big uh, truck, uh, you've got a big truck driving through, a, let's say, a muddy area or grassy area, uh, the slight displacement uh, will light up 
And and if you if you were to do an NSAR uh, or or CCD chorea and change detection, and so those are things that um, it's not just about being able to see through clouds and at nighttime because you've got this active sensor. Um, it's quite interesting to be able to dig in and and use some of these advanced techniques and do things that you just can't even do or attempt doing with other types of um, sensors like optical. Yeah, that's that's certainly a really cool aspect that we're, we're excited about. And I think uh, Pime, you touched on this a little bit, as did you too, Jake. You know, I, putting these data out and as and Pime, as you put out more data, it, it, it's really uh, just a first step in uh, building an ecosystem of developers around those types of of, of challenges. As as you mentioned uh, earlier in your comments, you know. A lot of this is it's very specialized, and thus, when you think about leveraging it in whatever type of analytic framework, it, it becomes really challenging, right? Because it's usually niche, or historically it was very niche, or expert, and it required an expert, and then it required somebody to get specialized data. We're, we're actually kind of flipping it on you guys are flipping it on its head by putting these data out there, and now hopefully with with challenges such as. SpaceNet 6, we can start putting out a strong baseline for people to work on just as a first step. Uh, yeah. And I would be I would be stunned. Uh, let me inverse that. I, I think we'll see just, I'll see, I think we'll see more excitement than what we've even seen with EO in the last three years, just to be perfectly blunt. Yeah, I totally agree. There's been people clamoring for SAR data, I think, at the conferences we've, we've spoke at and just the, the groups we're, we're tied in with. Yeah, I think, I think, um, Star has a bit of a marketing problem. Uh, got a marketing and PR problem, and 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 part of the reason is if you look at a star image, um, it's not as pretty as an optical image, right? It's it's black and white. It's some artifacts that your eyes are not used to. If you think about it, your eyes have been trained over many many thousands and millions of years on how to interpret the visible light, right? I mean that's how you look through your eyes, but the framework of how you look at a star image needs to, you know, you need to understand how the star image was collected. And when you start training yourself on, um, and you understand the physics behind it, and then you look at a star image, it actually becomes then quite clear for you. And then because, um, you know, we're, we're using machines these days to interpret um, and exploit the data, then it actually becomes less of an importance to be able to visually look at something and say, well, I can look at it better in an optical than a star. Because if at the end of the day, you've got machines telling you what it is you're looking at, and if you've been training the machines the right way, then it really doesn't matter if you've got that image from a star sensor or an optical sensor or any other sensor. And so the cool thing about star, and I think this is where we need to work on the marketing and the PR aspect of how star is being looked at is, um, it's got some really unique abilities and capabilities that other sensors don't. So you get to a point where the machine doesn't see the difference. Um, then the star has got some, some interesting legs up uh, compared to some other data sets. Yeah. Cause I mean, yeah. the ultimate goal in this work is that we are finding answers to problems in the case of SpaceNet foundational mapping, but there's a variety of other applications. And so that's, that's why we do this work, you know, and, so looking ahead, right, uh, walk us through the timeline because there's actually a lot coming up here uh, in very short order. Yes, yep. So uh, we're going to start promoting SpaceNet very soon, SpaceNet 6, that is. Technically, uh, you're promoting it now. But te sure. Technically, yeah. Technically, yeah. But yeah. this comes out in a little bit. All right. Um, 
But uh, yeah, so we're, we're going to have our, our first announcements um, and the challenge launch, what we're planning for March time period. Uh, the challenge will run uh, roughly about six to eight weeks, which is our, our usual time period for Space and Challenges. Um, and the, the cool aspect of this one is that after we announce the winners, um, uh, some of the top participants will be invited to come and attend uh, CVPR Earth Vision. So CVPR is computer vision pattern recognition. It's one of the top AI conferences in, in, in the world, and especially in the, specifically in the US. Um, and Earth Vision is geared towards uh, overhead and geospatial imagery analysis. Uh, so we are the official challenge of Earth Vision, uh, and as I said, the participants will be invited there to, to share some of the work, and um, SpaceNet will be helping to provide uh, access for the, those participants. And, and when is uh, CVPR this sure. year? That's, it's in mid-June, and it's in Seattle, Washington. And tying it back to our earlier conversation uh, with the Moby Dick piece, sure. uh, what does Seattle have ties to the book, the original Starbucks? Starbucks was Stobbs' friend. Remember that. Okay. All right. You're not doing great on this. No, no, no. I, Sorry. Yeah. It's fine. Can't that's win. Can't win every day. Um, so certainly that's on the challenge side. You know, Pime, you've given us a, a lot of previews on the launch side. Is there anything else uh, that you want to share on the Capella side that you're thinking about? I, I think what you guys are doing on this on this open data piece is going to be really cool to follow. Yeah. No, I mean the big thing for us this quarter and essentially in 2020 is making sure that the satellites get out of the door and uh, crossing our fingers that launch don't get delayed. As you know, in this industry, launch delays happen quite often, so we're tracking those. And um, I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll be able to get these satellites out and into space. And, um, and then, you know, we're going to go through our um, commissioning phase um, and, um, and starting to uh, put data out there and, um, and, and get into uh, real business. So we're, that's front and center for us, and uh, and we're working around the clock uh, to make that happen. Well, that's awesome, and uh, huge congrats to you and just how far and how fast you guys have come. Uh, two not really important questions, but I'm going to ask them anyways. Uh, do you have mission patches for your for your upcoming launch? If so, is there any way that we could have access to those? Uh, we certainly do, and... Uh, and uh, I will send some to you guys yes. right after this call. <laughs> Excellent. We'll, we'll do a trade. We, we will send you a uh, SpaceNet T-shirt in, in trade for a patch. That, that's, that sounds that's like fair. a fair deal. And then uh, last question on my end. Uh, I love how you, you, your guys' naming conventions uh, for, your, for your satellites. Uh, what's your favorite national park? Um, it's actually Sequoia. Um, so we're, I'm, I'm putting a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, bank on this uh, next satellite. Um, Sequoia is my favorite one, and uh, it's also the first one that's going to be operational. So um, definitely looking forward to that. That's awesome. It's great karma. I, if I can, I don't think I can, but I will here. Uh, I've just put in a vote for Joshua Tree. That's all I'm going to say. I'm partial to Tetons. Is, is Joshua Tree a national? Oh, my um, gosh. I don't. Yeah. Man, I, now I mean, I'm so failing. Look, what, what, what happened was the next the next batch of our satellites or the constellation is called Whitney. And, um, and, and so there's a huge argument in our office that Whitney is actually not a national park. It's a state park. Oh. And so we should go back and change the name. And, and our marketing department is like, Oh my God, no, that's horrible. Cause everyone knows about it now. And so I think we're going to, it's going to be a mixture of national parks and state parks and just 
beautiful places maybe maybe at some point we'll we'll diverge and do some other things but uh, we wanted to keep it as as american as it gets because this is obviously the first uh uh commercial star uh coming out of america and, and so we're pretty pretty proud and excited about that well your team certainly should be and uh Pime, uh can't thank you enough uh for your and your team's support uh obviously a big shout out to to also your team members, you know, Andrew and, and Scott and Jason uh, for helping us on this. And thanks for making time today to come on the show. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We're very excited about this. Yep. Jake. Us too. Always a pleasure to have you on. Yeah. I wish I could say the same. Oh man. All right. With that wow. said, it's been great. Uh, stay tuned on uh, all information related uh, uh, to both SpaceNet. You can find that on spacenet.ai and then, uh, all information uh, with Capella, you can find at capellaspace.com. Uh, thanks again to everyone, and we'll be talking soon. Rule 42. When in doubt, use SAR. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to hear more episodes or be kept up to date, When we release a new show, please make sure to subscribe to Training Data wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to find out more information and links to the different sites and data sets and presentations and all the different content that we discussed today, you can find more at cosmicworks.org, that's cosmic with a Q, spacenet.ai, and our blog, the downlink, that's also with a Q on Medium. As you're seeing here, we like the letter Q. Music was provided by the DMV Zone, and for those of you not in the DMV, that is the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, by Redline Addiction. Uh, a big thank you to Kristen Zender and Carrie Sassine from Inkytel's Marketing Group. Also a shout-out to Hardcast Media uh, for serving as our studio. Thanks for listening, and take care. <laughs>